Hey guys, it's Alec here to remind you to check the trigger warnings before today's episode. So get comfy and you can find everything in the description down below, including our new transcripts. Have a safe listen. Mythale presents Circe's The Spooky Hour Olympics. Oh, that was one drink too many. I should really head home. Uh, Eyes. Oh, um, Dr. Timor. Uh, Hold on a moment. I would perhaps advise some cardio training. Snarky as ever. <sighs> I, I just ran too fast. I was actually about to leave. Sorry, sorry. No dice. You are one of the last people standing. Yay me? I don't see why that's of any importance. It means you want a spot at the campfire for spooky hour. No thank you. I... Think I'll just leave? Yeah, that wasn't a question. <laughs> Come on. Wait, 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 hold, hold on. My lads, thank you all for coming, and it is finally time for our yearly tradition The Last Man Standing, the Spooky Story Olympics. I'm not sure Olympics is the right word for it. And. How do you know this is a yearly event? You haven't even been working here for a year. Uh, a little birdie told me. No, <laughs> uh, I used to host this kind of event at my university, so just go along with it, please. Right. Sounds fun to me, partner. So, who wants to start out by telling the first ghost tale? Quick question. Does it have to be... About ghosts? Good question. And no. The only requirement this year is that it has to be a true story. I think that calls for an example. Want to do the honors and start off the party? I never thought you would ask. My story will be called The Well Man. A friend of the family, Carter. Always told us stories from his childhood when he'd visit. He had grown up in a small town surrounded by a dark forest, where all kinds of creatures reside. Or so he'd say. One story about his grandfather always made my skin crawl. The people of Carter's hometown were closely knit, thanks to the community of the few elderly people in town. Carter's grandparents were some of the few that were still there after a mysterious string of disappearances 50 years earlier. 
And when the disappearance of Carter's schoolmates started, people noticed fast. However, no one did anything about it. Carter's grandfather told him to stay away from it all, especially the well in the woods. They warned him sternly that he'd disappear too if he went looking into the well water. The disappearances started slowly at first. One child, not much older than ten, had seemingly wandered into the forest and had not returned. The child's mother had been in distress, fearfully whispering about the dangers of the well in the woods. When Carter asked his grandfather where the well was, he was told not to ever talk about it, or the well man might hear him. So Carter didn't ask any more questions. A week after the first child had gone missing, a kid down the road disappeared too. No one had found the first child. No one had even searched for them. The elderly people of the town warned everyone not to look, to stay away from the forest, and people listened. Carter didn't understand why. Two children had gone missing, and no one seemed to do anything about it. They all just cried and carefully whispered warnings about the well in the woods. Five weeks after the first disappearances, seven kids had gone missing. Still, no one had tried to look for them. Everyone just told the remaining kids not to wander further than the asphalt road leading to the woods. One evening, Carter's grandfather took him aside and said quietly, Stay away from the old well, kid. Dares you to look long into the dark, murky water. But don't give in. If it catches you with its red eyes, it might just take you too. Later, that same night, Carter's grandfather took it upon himself to look for the missing children. Days flew by, and just like with the children, no one went looking for Carter's grandfather. Carter himself tried, but his grandmother stopped him before he managed to sneak out. She said things would simply figure themselves out. Eventually, as a week passed, Carter could no longer control his curiosity and worry and had gone into the forest to see it all for himself. A well could not be that dangerous, and even if it was, he would just not go near it. He had told himself. His grandfather was gone, and the least he could do was look for him. As he neared the end of the asphalt road, and felt the gravel beneath his feet, he saw a figure by the edge of the forest, hiding in the shadows. Maybe the light was just playing a trick on him, but he could have sworn he saw a pair of glowing red orbs in the dark by the tree line. They vanished as quickly as they had appeared though, and he was relieved to see his grandfather step out from the shadow soon after. The old man stood before him, dripping wet from the waist down. He stumbled closer, falling to his knees as he reached Carter, and he said with a labored breath, 
don't look behind me. The well man is not in the well. Mighty fine tale, if and I do say so myself. Since I just told my story, that means that I get to pick the next person. Jack, the snack that bites back. How about you go next? Ready as can be, pilgrim. Now, gather round and listen close. Here is how my story goes. Lords above tell me he isn't going to rhyme. It's about time we address the tale of the Wild West Pest. It happened so very long ago, out where only cacti grow. A lonely man who came from west had traveled far to join the fest. The fest has long ago begun, with no sign of it soon be done. No one could have foretold the secret the man kept untold. He carried a sickness tall and proud, of which he never spoke. God damn it, Elias. I can't take this seriously when you stare daggers at me like that. Listen, I get artistic freedom. That, however, includes anything but rhyming. Anything? Literally anything. Anything, you say? How's about I sing a song instead? I changed my mind. You had your turn, boy. Now sit back. Watch how a man does it. Now, where was I? Oh yeah. The man from out of town arrived. Yet he is not the protagonist in this very true story. That would be my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Don't do the math on how long a relative that distant would be. Bruce Willowwood, a man of the Wild West, but he weren't no cowboy. Not yet. He heard the stories of a new man in town, who walked with such determination you just knew he weren't no fool nor clown. And there he goes again. I'll draw on you if and you try to stop me rhyming, pilgrim. Men fell like flies when he was around, and women too would hit the ground. Grandfather Bruce knew better than to get near. He was better off pretending to not be there. The local doctor had never seen such a sight, as the bodies piled at such a height. Men lay still for ten days and ten nights, the remaining civilians running to fix their wrongs to rights. When the eleventh day arrived, every single man survived. But looking closer, you would see their skulls splitting in one, two, and three. From their heads bloomed a hat, with such importance, be sure of that. When their voices again could speak, and they no longer were so weak. From their beds they would arise, standing tall and now more wise. With eyes of yellow and skin tan like gold, they would walk the streets as foretold. 
and with a lift of their felt hats at anyone, even diplomats. They will say a warning before it's through, a single sentence before you are due. Howdy, partner. How do you do? How do you feel about being a barbecue? <laughs> what do you think about that? Pretty scary, right? It was truly a harrowing tale, Jack. Come on. Are you sure that's a true story, Jack? True. You bet your sweet ass it's true. My great-grandfather told me that story when he was still around. I know it by heart. Now, who should we send off to the chopping block next? Since he's just sitting there all gloomy-like, I think it's about time we hear what Mr. Grumpy Pants has to offer. Right. At least I won't have to go last. Go on then, Elias. Spin us a yarn. Let's just call my story... Mm, Embla. <laughs> Great start. My mom used to tell me stories of Embla. Always speaking of her with an air of importance. She sat perched on the windowsill throughout my childhood, her face fading into an almost grayish hue as the sun mercilessly attacked her porcelain skin. Now, that's what I forgot to tell you. Embla was not a human like you and me, though she would often give off the feeling when you stared too long into her dark glass eyes. No, Embla was a doll, and a very detailed doll at that. My mother had bought her home a few days after she had me. There had been a garage sale in the nice neighborhood just down the street from ours. My mom tried to acquire about what had happened to the old lady whose possessions were being sold, but the stern faces she was met with made the question dry up on her tongue, not allowing her to utter another word. She had been about to count her losses and get out of there before their eyes would dig further into her, when Embla had fallen headfirst at her feet, almost scaring my mother half to death. She confessed later that she has no idea as to why she had bought the doll. In all honesty, she didn't even remember doing so. I suppose that's just how Embla was, an oddity that was never truly understood. Things were never the same after Embla made her home within ours. At first, it wasn't too noticeable. She had settled herself on the long game. A few things would start to go missing, but nothing major. She mostly hit my mom's bookmarks, spoons specifically, and other such nonsense. My mother would only notice the difference when the doll was suddenly dropped on her bed from out of nowhere like a rift in the air had opened and dropped it carelessly on her sheets. It was when Embla started to move that my mother realized that something about her wasn't quite right. I, I know you might think that I'm joking, and I really wish I was, but as I mentioned, Embla had her spot in the house. She always sat on the windowsill, facing the playground, until she no longer wanted to sit there. That was. Some mornings, she would be gone, as simple as that. We didn't have any pets that would have been able to move her, if that was what you think. She somehow figured that out on her own. She started to reappear in the oddest of places. You would hear a rustle, and when you turned around, 
There she was, glass eyes peering into your own. I will admit that I screamed when her suddenly red-strained face appeared before me in the shower. One second I was washing the conditioner out of my hair, and the next, there she was. I ran out of the bathroom, holding the doll tightly in my hands, water dripping down my body as I spoke to my mother through gritted teeth. This isn't funny. I can only assume that she would have protested had it not been for the sudden loud thud behind me. Warm blood started seeping in between my feet. A headless bird laid on our floor, the body still twitching from its recent demise. That's when my mother first sat me down and told me about Embla. The doll from nowhere who seemed to have taken a liking to me. She told me that this wasn't the first time she had appeared out of the blue. Embla would appear on my windowsill where she would watch me play. Not in the sense of a guardian, no. When the night approached, she would be back in her spot by my bed. Just like I had left her, eyes fixated on the neatly done bed. Some nights, when Mom came and checked up on me, Embla would have made her way into my bed. The following day, Embla was back to her usual spot, but a grift, or rather, a threat, would have been left behind. Dead bugs at first, then mice, until she left the pile of dead rats, which explains why my mother had removed my carpets three years prior. I was tempted to crush the doll, throw her to the ground, and bathe in the sight of her head splintering into a million pieces. However, my hand, that just a moment ago held Embla in a tight grip, was now empty. Embla sat silently on the hand railing on the top floor, staring down at us with malevolence in her glassy eyes. We tried to take her to every spiritual healer or witch we could find, but none of them dared to put themselves up against Embla. Our only hope was a ritual my mother had found in one of her old spell books that would assure Embla to be bound within the doll, unable to move. The ritual would leave permanent marks on our bodies, which kept my mom searching for other solutions. It was a dark night ten years ago when it first became painfully obvious that we no longer had a choice. Three loud knocks could be heard echoing throughout the house. I sat up in my bed with a gasp, my room only lit up by an occasional lightning outside my window. The house fell silent as I snuck my way towards the door. As my foot made contact with the creaky floorboard, the door started slowly swinging open. I let out a scream. There, on our front step, laid a sprawled-out cat, guts flowing down the steps beneath it. I turned to run to my mother, but as I turned, there she sat. Embla, a kitchen knife neatly placed in her blood-dripping lap. I looked up to meet my mother's eyes. There was no doubt about what had to be done. We prepared the table, herbs thrown in the right jars in their rightful order, and words of a dead language spoken when appropriate. My mother looked almost sorrowful as she reached her hand towards me and said, It's time. I pulled up my shorts, exposing the softly freckled skin of my thigh. Blood was all we needed. 
I still have the scar, as does my mother, as a grim reminder of the night I would much sooner forget than relive. Embla was moved to a glass case, but never out of sight. Dispel should be able to contain her, but I swear to you I could feel her plotting her revenge behind those eyes whenever she caught a glimpse of us from her corner of the top floor. When my mother moved a few years later, I didn't stick around to see what would happen to my childhood home. I had forgotten about Embla until last year. When the new residents called to ask about the boxes in the attic, I went to look through the boxes just for the sake of nostalgia, climbing up the way too familiar ladder in a home that was no longer mine. I didn't even remember the glass case containing the porcelain nightmare from my childhood. It was only as I was digging through all the boxes and stumbled upon the case that it all came back to me. My blood ran icy cold, but not due to the sudden reminder of what had happened. No, for when I looked into the glass case, it didn't take me long to realize. The case was empty. Did you and Cairo coordinate your stories before this? <laughs> Listen, Elias avoids me on a regular basis, so the endings being vague is just a simple coincidence. Precisely. Right, I suppose this doesn't leave me much of a choice now, does it? Colton, why don't you go ahead and finish this off with a bang? You all seem to miss the point of spooky hours. Like, hello, not a single ghost story? <sighs> Let me show you exactly how it's done. It's time for the tale of Harriet Richardson. Alright, listen up, newbies. You're literally the newbie. Uh, that's beside the point. The next story is going to confuse you, terrify you, and maybe even make you want to quit your job. But fret not, nothing is going to happen to you as long as you have your patient's best interests in mind. This is a story about Harriet Richardson, our very own hospital ghost. Oh, don't look so skeptical. Every respectable institution that's been around as long as Sunshine Valley has got to have at least a couple of spooky legends told about it. Did you really expect us to be any different? To start off, let me get this out right away. Sometimes, patients know what's to come better than we do. That, of course, doesn't mean you need to take their every word as the ultimate truth, but do try to keep an open mind when you can. Sometimes, the alternative leads to mistakes not everyone can live with. Harriet Richardson knew something was coming. She knew death was creeping up on her weeks before it actually happened, and believe me, I know full well just how absurd that must sound, but you can't deny facts when they stare you right in the face. Naturally, Harriet brought her worries to her doctor, whose name I'm going to leave out of the story. I strongly advise you against looking it up or asking around. Chances are the senior staff won't be pleased about being reminded of this particular incident, and the sheer amount of shame it brought upon Sunshine Valley at the time... So, we'll just call him the doctor. So imagine a patient coming to you with concerns about their continuous existence. I bet at least some of you would feel mildly skeptical about it. And this doctor wasn't any different. Dismissing her altogether had proven to be a challenge, though. There are some things your patients do that you can't ignore, no matter how much you'd like to turn a blind eye to it. It started out as relatively harmless new peculiarities in Harriet's behavior 
A few times she was caught talking to people who weren't there. When asked who she was talking to, she would go on describing her late sister with a soft smile on her face. Harriet's eyes were clear all the while, leaving no doubt that she understood exactly where she was. She would answer the doctor's probing questions with excellent clarity, yet somehow managed to fit in conversations with the dead into her perfectly logical version of reality. When asked what they were talking about, Harriet would say something along the lines of making plans. As it turned out, by plans, she meant all the things she and her sister were going to do when she passed away, which was going to be soon. As days passed, she would mention visits from more and more people. Her childhood friend, some old lady who only ever talked about her knitting projects, and a gentleman who always sat in the empty corner of her room patiently waiting. She knew perfectly well what he was waiting for, and told the staff as such, he is waiting for me to move on. They all are, in their own ways. I know that would have freaked me out half to death, and it seemed to have the same effect on our doctor. There is no way of guessing what exactly was going through the doctor's head, but whatever it was, the man's reaction to those occurrences was complete denial. It is a mental institution, he would say. People here are incredibly good at believing what they want to believe. It is up to us to discern truth from falsehood. After that, anything slightly unconventional Harriet mentioned or complained about was treated with a somewhat gentle but firm rebuttal. Ignored was her newfound tendency to stay in her room, instead of socializing with other patients in favor of spending time with whatever invisible presence visited her that day. Unnoticed were her struggles with thermoregulation as she kept muttering something about the chill of the beyond seeping through her bones every time she took a breath. Overall, I can't imagine she enjoyed her stay at Sunshine Valley very much at the time. The gentleman says I'll be leaving with him tonight, was what she said the day it all ended. When asked where the gentleman was taking her, the answer was perhaps a bit predictable, but nonetheless chilling. To my final resting place. As you could have guessed, the doctor didn't take her words seriously, and as you could have assumed, Harriet Richardson passed away that very night. And that should have been it, would have been it, were the doctor to show any signs of remorse over what happened, because, spoiler alert, he didn't. Not really. Not in a way that would convince the former staff or Harriet. Soon after the incident, our sour doctor started showing signs of paranoid behavior. He tried to hide it, but therapists at Sunshine Valley have their jobs for a reason. We are equipped to spot odd behavioral patterns, and with time your brain just stops distinguishing patients from colleagues. The longer we work together, the more privy we tend to become to everyone's personal issues, and so the doctor's issues were clear for all to see as well. The man became jumpy, his eyes permanently bone-weary from what looked like a significant lack of sleep. Without any reasonable explanation, he kept checking over his shoulder as if expecting someone to take a swing at him. Next came the constant muttering under his breath, the jittery hands that failed to hold still as he signed the daily paperwork, and the looks of suspicion aimed at every living soul in the building. It was all becoming a bit too much for the rest of the staff, as well as the patients, until one day the doctor didn't show up for work at all. 
Some of the therapists would admit to each other that it was probably for the best, too. Or it would have been for the best. Were the doctor to actually leave and never come back. Instead, he was found in one of the vacant patient rooms that very day with the door locked from the inside. The man was entirely convinced he was going insane. No amount of questions made him confess the full extent of his reasoning for that, though. The closest he came to opening up, if you can call it that, was admitting that she was following him, judging his every thought, every move, and he couldn't take it anymore. She, according to the doctor, was none other than Harriet Richardson. I know what you want to say. Well, the guy must have been traumatized by his patient's death and felt guilty enough for his subconscious to start torturing him with hallucinations of her. No. Playing on your mind's weak points does sound like a human brain's field of expertise. In fact, the doctor's brain seemed to be so keen on using those weak points against him, it didn't let him go till the very end. And yes, your guesses are correct. He spent the rest of his life in this very place. Forever scared of every empty corner, voices that echoed through the vents, distorted shapes on the other sides of the windows on a rainy day, and of meeting other patients' eyes. By the end of it, the man had become a shadow of himself, his gray hair resembling the thinnest of threads, bleak eyes reflecting the years he'd spent giving up on himself inch by inch. He left behind a short letter, addressed to no one in particular, and by this point y'all should know me well enough to realize that I came prepared. This, of course, is only a copy of the original letter. And don't you give me that look, Elias. You can't expect me to remember it by heart, and it's not like I sneaked it out of the actual letter. Anyway, the letter. <clears throat> I am sorry. I am aware that it is not enough, but I am sorry. Harriet says it is my time to go. I don't understand this completely. Not even now. After years of talking to her and the others, but perhaps I don't have to understand. I've learned my lesson. Now we can finally move on. Don't make my mistakes. Unless you want Harriet to come for your sanity as well. She might be a great conversationalist. But I promise you, you are not prepared for the years it'll take you to figure that out. I didn't tell you in the beginning, but this is indeed a cautionary tale. I hope for all of your sakes that you will heed the doctor's warning. Do not ever presume you know all there is to know about the human mind and body. Do not ever put your pride and beliefs before your patients, because no amount of therapy from any of us can help you deal with what the ghost of Harriet Richardson will do to you if you take the wrong path. Have any of y'all ever seen the ghost of Harriet? Oh, not that I know of. But if someone did, I bet it'd be Elias. Excuse me? <laughs> if it wasn't for his youthful appearance, I would have suspected Elias to be like 80. Hey, what what is this? The Elias Hate Club? You know, it's odd that don't exist already. Oh, come on, Elias. We're just joking around. Yeah, yeah. Whatever you say, newbie. 
I must admit, this is a rather spooky tradition you got there. <laughs> well, stick around till next year, and uh, I will show you tradition. All right, I think there was enough fun for one night. I've had one too many ciders and a long shift waiting for me tomorrow. Ugh, don't remind me. My shift starts in five hours. I'm tempted to find an empty room and sleep off the booze. I live like five minutes away if you want to crash at mine. Come on, who do you take me for, an easy lay? Come along and we shall find out, pretty boy. Only this once. Hey, you said it, not me. Fancy a ride home? But don't, you don't even live near me. Perhaps, but uh, I do fancy a drive myself. If it wasn't for the fact that the next night bus is in 30 minutes, I would have said no. <laughs> That's uh, good to know. Now, oh, come on. So Cease is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. Featuring Alexander Bauna as Elias Short, Henry Johannesson as Cairo Timor, the endlessly talented Dylan Griggs as Jack. Check out his podcast, We'll Be Gone. And the fabulous Cole Weavers as Colton. Check out his podcasts, Tiny Terrors and The Town Whispers. Audio edited by Henry Johannesson and Els Sadi. The Wellman was written by Jay Jacobson. Wild West Pest and Embla was written by Alexander F. Bauna. The Legend of Harriet Richardson was written by Rita Bauna. With dialogue written by Alexander F. Bauna. Manuscript edited by Rita Bauna and Els Sadi. Until we return November 5th, we here at Sassiz wish you all a very spooky Halloween. Until next time, ooh, don't let Harriet Richardson bite your toes, question mark? Yeah, that's, that's enough for me.